Welcome to the FGO Show. I'm your host, Eric Saldomino, and joining me today is Shane Glassford, certified prosthetist and leads the custom-made prosthetics lab, prosthetists and prosthetic technicians at Sunnybrook Center for Independent Living in Toronto, or SCALE. Today's episode is brought to you on behalf of the FT Coalition of Toronto, a peer support group committed to providing advocacy and support for those in the limb loss and limb different communities. April is Limb Loss Awareness Month, and this episode is presented on behalf of the FT Coalition of Toronto's education program. In this episode, we will be talking about prosthetics. Welcome to the show, Shane, and thank you for being here. Thanks, Todd. Um, I was very honored to receive your invitation, so thanks for having me. No, the, the pleasure is all mine, sir. Thank you for, for coming on today. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do at Scale? Sure. Um, my name is Shane Glassford. I'm a certified prosthetist. I work at uh, Sunnybrook Center for Independent Living, or as we affectionately call it, Skill. Um, I'm the uh, team lead. Um, I'm a process make and fit the artificial limbs. I've gone through the, uh, the technical program, learning how to do the manufacturing and the clinical program, uh, fitting and uh, sort of designing the prosthetic devices. And how long have you been in the industry? Okay. Uh, I graduated in, uh, oh, you want to make me feel old. <laughs> I graduated in 1994. <laughs> um, I spent, uh, after graduating, I spent about seven years or so in a private facility uh, in uh, Toronto and then moved to the uh, uh, Children's Hospital. I was there for about 14 years and then I was in the last six or six and a half years at Sunnybrook. So let's start from the very beginning then. When a patient comes in with the limb loss, a patient has just had surgery or lost a limb through trauma, what are the initial steps that, or would you handle each assessment differently for those patients? I don't think we necessarily handle it differently, but the outcome can be different. Um, the needs for a, uh, a new amputee uh, varies uh, quite uh, drastically from someone who is, has been an amputee for a, a longer period of time. The assessment basically is to figure out where people are, where they're hoping to go, what are the issues that uh, we need to try to design into the prosthesis to make it work best for them. Um, and so from the, the beginning, we'll do that assessment. And I, I'd like to think that we that everyone's treated the same way. And, and, and then we branch out from, uh, to, to address their specific needs. Uh, a new amputee coming in generally um, will need a lot more information. Uh, there may be a small subset of new amputees uh, that have had a chance to think about life as an amp and thinking about prosthetic care and all those types of things prior to the amputation. But for the most part, most people, um, you know, you'll, oh, the majority of amputees are lower extremity, they're diabetic or dysvascular. And so it starts off with a little wound that won't heal and gets worse and gets worse. Um, and then at some point the amputation suggests that um, the, depending on the severity of the, um, the, the loss of, of blood flow, uh, that may, they may or may not have a lot of time to process that thought as to what's going to happen next. And so we do get a number of, uh, of patients that come through that are still processing uh, the, whole, the whole loss of the limb, um, much less starting to deal with um, things like funding, like ADP, like war amps, like 
um, dealing with the prosthesis and how they put, uh, put their shoes on and what shoes they can wear and all those types of things. Um, so everyone's a little bit different and we try to tailor that care specifically to the needs of, of, of the, the people we're dealing with. Mm. And so then what's the process for, I guess, my question is, what are the natural progression of care from fitting all the way to your definitive prosthesis? So maybe expand on that life cycle, if you will, from okay. meeting the patient all the way to the definitive. A lot of people get overwhelmed and gets, you know, gets really confused as to how that process works. Exactly. And I'd like to think that everyone's providing the same care and everyone's answering all the same questions, but uh, we're all individuals and, and we'll, we'll sort of em uh, emphasize different things. Um, the other thing that uh, I think occurs is that um, as much as the prosthetist is an individual providing information, the amputee is an individual and they're, they're receiving that information and they may not hear the same thing, or they may hear one part that's highlighted more than another part. Uh, what we have done is we've created a, a package to uh, take amputees through that pathway. Um, but it's a lot of reading, it's, it's fairly dry. Um, and if you're not all that invested or, or not emotionally ready to deal with it, the, it, a lot of the information can go over your head or in one ear, out the other. And I don't think that is intention intentional. Um, but I, what I sort of tell uh, my staff is be prepared to, uh, to answer the same question a bunch of times. Um, the, 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 the amount of information that we have to provide is uh, a ton. There is a lot of information to deal with. At the same time, uh, there's a lot of other information, not just from the process. The therapists are telling them one thing. The physician is telling them something else. Uh, for some of the patients, and we've had a few that didn't even realize they were diabetic, so they're changing diet. They're doing all of those other medication um, adjustments at the same time, dealing with uh, pain meds, etc., and still trying to process um, this uh, leg that they have to walk on. So. When we go through, in terms of, if I can lay out the, uh, the, the the pathway, when you get referred to the process, it means that the doctor figures that the, the limb is healed sufficiently that you can now start the amputee fitting and rehabilitation portion. So once we're given the go ahead, uh, you'll meet, uh, sometimes you'll meet the process on rounds prior to. Um, other times it's once uh, the doctor gives the okay for us. So we'll come introduce ourselves and let you know what's going on. Um, very often we'll do a casting. A casting basically is a, an impression. We take an impression. Typically uh, we're still using a lot of the plaster bandage to wrap around the residual limb. That, um, that cast, once the plaster bandage hardens, it's taken off the limb. Um, and that's what we make the prosthesis from. Your very first prosthesis is very basic. Um, it's plastic, uh, uh, sort of translucent plastic. It's fairly heavy, but the, the, the concept behind that is that you're not going to be using that for a long period of time. What the body does after amputation is uh, there's a lot of swelling. Um, the trauma, and the body reacts to any kind of trauma by, by swelling up, it protects the, the, the tissue. Well. Amputation is trauma to the body. And so the body's reaction is to swell. So we've got, uh, as you heal, 
the the body is healing and the swelling comes out of the limb and so the the leg actually starts getting a little bit smaller um, at the same time that's happening but happening on a much slower scale is the uh the muscles that you are using for example to um move your ankle you're no longer moving your ankle because the ankle isn't there well most of those muscles are in the calf area and because you're not using them what happens when you don't use your muscles is they atrophy and they get a little bit smaller so in addition to the uh, swelling coming out of the limb and the muscles atrophy from from not being used that prosthesis that uh, was fitting you maybe fairly well on day one by day 10 not quite as well um, and getting worse and worse as uh, as time goes on as the shrinking occurs the difficult part is not everyone shrinks uniformly. And so it's not like we can say that on day 10, everyone will be in 10 ply of socks or 20 ply of socks. So it is very much an individual thing, but we try to um, educate the amputee so that they can have a sense of what's uh, going on in their limb and uh, how to manage it. The The difficulty that we have obviously is the um, your, your uh, a prosthetic socket is a static, um, rigid container, and the body isn't, and the body is changing. And so the only way we can manage uh, that volume change is with the use of stump socks. And so we use additional stump socks, you know, add and to a certain point, then it gets to the point where we can no longer fit and it doesn't work, and then it comes time for a replacement. Now, <laughs> where do we go from there? So very often, uh, the, the body needs two or three, uh, usually two at least anyway, um, of the, what we call a thermo prep. So that's that initial socket when, uh, that you get, like I say, it's quite heavy, um, and it may fit fairly well in the beginning, but as a new APT, you don't know what that means. It's not going to be comfortable. Um, no one puts on sort of solid shoes and goes, ah, that's nice. So the same thing would apply to a prosthetic socket. We try and make it as, as comfortable as possible, but it's, it's, it's a rigid device you're putting your body into. And so there is a limit to how, quote unquote, comfortable it's going to be to start off with. Um, what we do find is if uh, we've done a decent job, most people do start getting used to that sensation and there can be a, a relative uh, amount of comfort um, when wearing a prosthesis. So in terms of atrophy uh, and swelling, the swelling generally comes out of the limb relatively quickly, but the atrophy continues basically for your entire life. Um, if uh, it, it's obviously a little bit more in the beginning um, and it, uh, then it slows down uh, over time. But usually the first year, there's the most amount of change in the residual limb. So just from a timeline perspective, you, you said about a year's worth of time. And that I think that's a general good measure of how your limb changes. Um, so you get your first socket, maybe you know two, three weeks later or whatever that may be, whatever your body's adjusting to and recovering. And then let's say three or four months later, what's a good measure for you, you think, of people who would say, I think I need, I need a new socket now, or I, I guess what's a good measure of ply socks for those okay. um, who are familiar with that term? Ply socks, everybody, is the, the socks that you put on to fill in the void or fill in the gaps between yourself and, and your prosthetic. 
Um, so what are those good measures for yourself to, to start having that conversation again with your prosthetist? Um, if, if, if I was to use a, a generic number, I would mm -hmm. say somewhere between 15 and 20 ply is about as much as I think you can tolerate and still um, be uh, moderately comfortable. I think the other thing that you're going to look at in concert with the number of socks you're wearing is any discomfort you have. Um, if you find that um, you're, you're, you're feeling a lot of pressure in any one specific area, um, that's another thing to look at, another thing to address. Uh, what we can do, in we generally will adjust the socket. We can adjust, sorry, we adjust with number of socks you're wearing, but we can also adjust a socket potentially, um, ease out areas if there's an, an area of high pressure. Um, and basically what we try and do is extend the life of that, those initial sockets for as long as possible, because we want to get as much as that volume change to happen. So that once we go to a more definitive socket, you're likely to get a longer life out of those definitive sockets. So we don't right. want to keep replacing them over and over and over. Uh, so mm -hmm. we try and hold on for as long as we can in the initial sockets. And so that's sort of that balance point that we um, kind of find ourselves. So we may have an ant that wants, uh, oh, they're in 10-ply, they want a new one. Um, and while that's not completely unreasonable, but if the total loss of volume would be 30-ply and we're replacing it at 10, we're going to run out of funding through the government because they allow two replacements uh, of the thermal prep sockets in that first year and then one definitive. So we're trying to extend the life and limit the number of new devices that need to be made. So a rule of thumb would be between 15 and 20 ply. Very often we can add a liner or a pad to try and reduce some of the number of socks that, uh, that varies between from person to person. So for mm -hmm. example, if, uh, if you were fairly muscular in that gastroc area, and we're speaking specifically about the below the knee amputees for now. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's the, where the majority of the volume loss is. Sometimes we can put a pad into that area and we can get back to close to the right volume distribution. If you look at your leg, um, either sound side or amputated side, um, there's a shape. And what we're trying to do is trying to match that shape to fit you as best possible. And if you sort of feel that fleshy part of your leg in, in the, that, that, the calf area, that soft tissue, whereas at the knee, you can feel the bone fairly close to the surface. So you can appreciate that if the muscles atrophying, what's happening down in the calf area is gonna be very different than what happens to the knee. And so we can sometimes add half socks or do a variety of different things. But as you get to a certain point, the the you can only add so many socks because the knee hasn't shrunk where the the the, the belly of the gastroc or, or the calf area has and so those are the types of things we're we're trying to do we're trying to change and keep up with the volume losses with socks but we can only go so far and once we lose that we we call it losing the fit and and because we can we know that we can add socks and still maintain uh, like i say a, a certain relative comfort um, but at, at some point we, we're not able to, and then when we lose that fit, then that's the time, uh, for a new prosthesis, Would you or at least new, much, new socket. Right. Yeah. Would you pretty much say that that's common for, uh, lower limb amputees, same with thighs, right? 
like your thighs would shrink exactly or atrophy exactly the same way as you would an, a below knee, correct? Right. Make that assumption? Yes. Right. Yes. So you'd have the it, same it, sort of measurement and gait, you know, sort of measure and say, okay, you need to add more ply socks as well because pretty much your thighs are, are getting smaller because you don't have much use of it. For, for an above knee amputee, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes, they'll, they'll, they'll deal with the same thing. Um, the, the difference between a below knee amputee and an, an above knee amputee is the proximity of the bone to the surface. So for a below the knee amputee, uh, you can feel your knee, your kneecap, the, um, the condyles of the knee um, are pretty close to the surface, whereas uh, above the knee, that femur is buried within a lot of muscle. So you're not going to necessarily get the same pressure points, but there still will be a discomfort um, and the pressure distribution is off. So what we try to do is try um, to distribute the weight of the body throughout the residual limb as evenly as possible. Now it's not, we're, we're not able to do it completely perfectly, the same weight everywhere else. Some parts of the limb are more tolerant to weight bearing, some parts are less. But what we wanna try and do is distribute um, the, the amount of load of your, your body weight through the prosthesis as, as, as evenly uh, as possible. And so for, I use the example, um, if you look at the bottom of the residual limb, the bone proximity to the surface, and if you were to stand on your residual limb um, on the bottom with nothing else, just sort of put it down on a table, that would be extremely painful. Um, and so what we are gonna try and do is take the body weight and distribute it around the rest of the limb. But here's the thing, even though um, putting your weight down on the end would be painful. I, we still want some pressure in the end. We don't want zero. Um, and so we're, if, if I, I use example and just sort of easy numbers, if you weighed hundred pounds um, and you can't tolerate hundred pounds in the bottom of your limb, but you might be able to tolerate 10 pounds. That means I've got 90 pounds to put in various places around the rest of your limb. Um, and so if I can do that, evenly, then it's more likely to be, to be comfortable. So every, right. every point that I can take some weight on your limb that's not 100% uh, gives a better chance for the, the areas that can tolerate more weight and distribute that more evenly. And what about on the upper side, like the upper limb amputees? I've, I've met amputees who also wear ply socks on their Yep. Uh, upper limb. So does that same idea sort of applies there as well? Yeah, so so atrophy will occur uh, regardless because uh, again, a, a general rule of thumb, um, the area of the body above the joint. Um, so if you think uh, an amputation, sort of middle of the forearm, it means you're not, you, you don't have a wrist. Well, most of the muscles in sort of below the elbow are the muscles that are, that are moving the wrist and moving the fingers. So they're not being used in the same way. And so there will be atrophy as well, sort of regardless of what the body part is. Um, and so for upper extremity amps, uh, the, the, the equation changes a little bit because you're not weight bearing. Unless you're doing push-ups and doing sort of sports, and then those become almost very specific devices. But for an upper extremity amputee, um, we're not trying to weight bear. What we're trying to do is do almost the opposite. We're trying to hold the arm onto you. 
And so it's got to hold on to hold the weight of the prosthesis and then anything you're going to carry. And so with a, a lower extremity amputee, we want to take your body weight uh, for an upper extremity, we want to hold on, hold the arm onto you. So the suspension becomes the greater uh, factor than the weight bearing. Right. Well, that's, that's really good to know and, and sort of make that difference. I, 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 that didn't even clue into me that, oh, you're not, you know, <laughs> about even carrying the weight and holding onto your, to your prosthetic on your body and then also carrying the weight that you may be carrying on that side of your, of your limb. Um, you, you brought up uh, uh, some of the um, issues that, you know, a patient could come across. What are other common, like, you know, can you list a, a number of common issues that patients can expect at the early stages of wearing prosthesis? I will, I will give you that off the top of my head and I'm sure I'm going to forget something. Typically, the, the biggest issue is getting used to wearing uh, a device. We try to suggest, um, and it does sort of work with the amputee rehab program, is you're not wearing the prosthesis full-time all the time from the get-go. You want to give the skin a little bit of time to get used to the additional pressure. Uh, we want to give the body time to um, um, acclimatize to how tight a prosthetic socket has to be. Um, uh, that actually, to, to sort of expand on that a little bit, um, if you've not worn a prosthetic socket, you don't realize how tight it needs to be. It does have to contain all of your tissue. Um, and we're holding you up through the tissue um, because we can't lock onto a bone necessarily. Um, and so it, it does tend to be quite tight. And for someone who uh, has done this before, that can be a little bit of a, whoa, that's really, really tight. It can feel really constrictive. Um, and, and I've heard people say it's uh, almost claustrophobic. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a climatization period that is, is normal. Um, but may not be within uh, your your understanding of what is normal is, is the, sort of that new normal thing. So uh, getting the body time to acclimatize to that, I'm trying to think that there's there's all the appointments you need to come see the process, especially in the beginning. Um, uh, to you know we don't have the elves in the back uh, making them. Uh, I, I have had phone calls going, yes, I'd like to come pick one up. And unfortunately, it's not something that's uh, off the shelf. So it does take a number of appointments where we may be doing an assessment and not even casting, not even getting an impression on the first day. We're just talking about what the goals are, what are your options, what are you looking for? Um, and then the casting happens and then you got to come back for a diagnostic socket potentially. And then we're going to do the fitting and then it's an alignment time. Um, and, and I'm looking at Todd nodding because he's been through all of this. <laughs> um, and then it takes uh, another few appointments before we're actually ready to for you to take that home. The, I know, the... I, I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, sorry. I was going to, um, I know one of the complaints I hear often is, you know, skin breakdowns and itchiness and sweating. And like, what are those, I guess, what are your thoughts on those? And are they easily remedied? Um, a lot of those things really come down to the individual. There are people who uh, perspire a lot. And there's some people who don't. Um, we know that uh, we have, uh, depending on limb shape and everything else, we'll sometimes use a, a liner, um, silicone or TPE or polyurethane. They tend to be quite hot, especially in the beginning. 
Um, so typically what we have found is uh, someone first getting a, a prosthetic socket um, with a liner and they rolled a silicone liner or TP or whatever material we use onto their limb and there's absolutely no air circulation. And so it does feel very hot. Um, there tends to be a lot of perspiration, especially if you're, you're, you're prone to perspiration. Uh, I've heard stories of people taking their liners off and pouring, you know, a half a cup of water down the drain. <laughs> um, what typically happens, though, is after you've been using the prosthesis for a little while, um, we do see a, a gradual reduction of the amount of perspiration that happens in that liner uh, to the point where it actually stops completely. Um, there are a couple of factors in that uh, as, as we get to understand it better. And we think that if there's zero air, um, there's no voids and it's fitting snugly against the skin, then there's uh, less likelihood of perspiration. If there are voids, little pockets, then we can start seeing perspiration. So perspiration absolutely is uh, a factor. We do have, even though the, the materials we use are uh, medical grade, they're generally uh, inert. There are people who do react. Um, it's a very small set, but if, if, if you're one of those um, people reacting to a silicone, um, it may actually not be the silicone, it may just be the heat. Um, but then, you know, we're now forced to look at different options for uh, suspension or for cushioning or, or, you know, the variety of different reasons we would use liner. Mm -hmm. um, itchiness, uh, yeah, some people will get a rash from, from the heat of, uh, of having a, a liner around their limb, uh, you know, uh, so, a lot of amps, especially, um, you know, two, three years out are wearing the prosthesis for 14, 16 hours a day, um, which is a long time to not have any air circulation on the skin. And so some people do get uh, reactions to that. Um, in terms of wounds uh, and skin breakdown, what we need to look at is a couple of different things. Uh, it can be caused by pressure or it can be caused by rubbing or it can be caused by moisture, but those are the big ones. So think about pressure. Um, the, the most common area for skin breakdown in a transtibial amputee is the distal tib, which is the bottom of the shin bone. And that often happens if we lose suspension. So the body shrinks and you don't have enough socks, you slide down into the socket and you hit the end. It can be very, very painful with um, the, the, the one caveat. And every time I make a statement, I have this thing in the back of my head going, yeah, but what about? Um, so uh, some of the diabetic population uh, lose that sensation and they lose that protective mechanism. And so they're actually not seeing the pain or not feeling the pain, I should, see, I should say. Um, very often, if they're uh, inspecting the limb after they take their prosthesis off, they should see some redness. But if they're not feeling the pain of hitting the end, then all of a sudden their skin breaks down on like, what's going on. Um, and so that's, that's a sensation thing. Obviously, if you're fully sensate, you're going to feel that pressure earlier, sooner, and be able to take steps to uh, remedy, add your socks. Um, that's one of the things we try and teach. If you're feeling pressure, especially in a couple specific areas, that's the first thing you go to is you add a sock and, and try again. And if that is still having problems, then you're going to call the process and we're going to make adjustments or at least address 
you know, maybe you've added a sock, but really you need to add five. But we don't know until we've actually seen that. So, so pressure is one. Uh, shear forces are another area that can cause um, uh, skin breakdown. And that's basically uh, the pistoning. So when you wear the prosthesis, ideally we want it holding on to you with very, very little movement inside the socket. There's no way we can eliminate it 100% because the skin moves. And so you can get um, movement if you sort of just hold your arm and move your skin back and forth, you can see that the skin is going to move. So there's always going to be a little bit of movement. But what we don't want is that skin sliding against the prosthetic socket. That can cause skin breakdown. For lower extremity amputee, that'll typically happen if you don't have adequate suspension. So a lot of new amputees, we use a, uh, a sleeve suspension, which is uh, basically a sleeve that goes onto the socket, rolls up onto your leg. It's not uncommon, it's a pain in the you know what, because it has to come quite high up the leg. And so the tendency for it to cheat down a little bit is, is quite inviting. But when we do that, we can run into the risk of having, of losing a little bit of that suspension. And so the leg sliding back and forth a little bit, and it doesn't take much because it's every single step. And if you get that rubbing happening with every single step, if you're fairly active, it's not gonna take that long before you've actually abraded the skin away. The last, piece of the puzzle in terms of skin breakdown typically is if there's a lot of moisture in the residual and sorry in the in the socket and whether that being um, socks being wet from perspiration or for a new amputee that are that is perspiring into their liner and not changing and drying it off regularly enough or you know you, you go have a shower and the socks are still wet and you actually you realize you're late and you're rushing off and you don't change the socks and or the, the skin isn't dry uh that can create other problems and so the issue that you have is um wet uh moist skin uh is a lot more delicate and um i i, I use the analogy that if you're washing the dishes um and you scrape a knife you can cut your skin if you you know had your hands in the dishwater uh for some time it's much more it's much easier to damage the skin if you touch something than touching the same thing when your hands are dry and, and so the skin on the residual limb becomes more delicate and then that borderline pressure that might be okay any other time if the skin is wet can actually cause a breakdown so those are the three main ones that you're going to have to watch out for no, that's, um, that's really good and very helpful indeed. I know for myself, I've experienced a lot of those at the very beginning until my skin gets con got conditioned to actually wearing yes. my silicone liners. But now I want to explore the general prosthetic setup and perhaps, you know, walk us through what each one from below knee, above knee, and upper extremities would, would look like. So can you walk us through both upper limb and lower limb prosthesis? So uh, if we look at the parts of a prosthesis, um, I'll start with a uh, sort of the lower limb and work our way up. So we have uh, partial feet uh, amputations, um, and that could be something as simple as uh, a foot orthotic with a uh, toe filler. Basically, it keeps the shape of the, um, of the toe in the shoe so the shoe doesn't collapse because uh, the implication of that is of the shoe collapsing is actually putting pressure on the top of the residual limb, um, and that can actually cause some problems. The, the, uh, the foot orthotic maintains the arch of the foot and, again, distributes the force over the, um, the rest of the, the remaining foot. And then we have, um, there are a variety of different levels of partial foot from a missing great toe all the way to um, 
uh, a midfoot or um, uh, an amputation, the lift frank and the show part, which is basically where we, the, the old school nomenclature uh, was basically the surgeon that came up with the idea of amputating to a certain level, that amputation level got named after that surgeon. Um, the typical one we think of is a SIMES, which is an ankle disarticulation. Um, and so uh, you can have the entire forefoot uh, amputated. So you just got the calcaneus. The upside of that is you still have the, your own heel pad that you can weight bear on. Um, the downside of that is there's very little we can do in terms of prosthetics because we're now going to affect the height because anything we put below the heel is going to make the prosthetic side or the affected side longer than the sound side. Um, as we go uh, higher amputation levels, you can go to a SIMES amputation, which is a disarticulation between the uh, tibia and fibula, the two bones in the lower limb lower limb and uh, the ankle. So it's, it's like an ankle, uh, we call it ankle disarticulation or SIMS uh, amputation. What we do is, um, or sorry, what we do, what the surgeon does also remove what we call the malleoli, which are the two bumps in your ankle, because those bones actually stick down past the surface of the, um, of the, of the ankle. So those would be removed. They then take the heel pad which is the, 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 the tissue that, you're, that we have on the bottom of our foot that is weight tolerant and we can put a lot of pressure on that, that heel pad is then sutured to the bottom of the, uh, the amputation. The nice thing is even though it's short, a SIMS amputee can often take a couple of short steps without a prosthesis. It's not something you'd wanna sort of walk on long-term because you could still damage the, the limb, but at least for a couple of steps and, and the typical uh, description is going to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you can get there without having to put your prosthesis on. Um, so there's some advantages there. Disadvantage is the options for prosthetic feet. There are very few prosthetic feet that will fit in the space um, that your, your uh, foot is. And so your, your options for prosthetic feet are very limited. Uh, as we go higher, then we're looking at sort of a, a, what we call a transibular or, or a below the knee amputation. Um, and so that would be the removal of the, uh, the ankle and sort of half the shin. The, that's your most common uh, amputation level. It's nice in terms of you can take that muscle, that gastroc muscle, the surgeon tends to bring it up and around to Good, uh, create nice protection for the distal end or the bottom end of the bones that have been cut. Um, you have much more choices for prosthetic feet. Um, and uh, basically most uh, of the prosthetic components are sort of designed for that level. Uh, individually, if you're really tall, you have more choices. If you're really short, you have a little bit less choices. Uh, if the surgeon leaves a little bit longer, you may have a little bit less choices. If the surgeon's cuts a little bit shorter, uh, you may have more choices. That's always a trade-off because the, the leverage of the limb, the longer it is, the more leverage you have. Um, however, you still, so, so the, the, the question then 
could be, well, just leave it as long as possible. And the problem with leaving it as long as possible is you don't have that muscle coverage coming, protecting the end as, as nicely. So everything's obviously a trade-off and uh, that's that happens long before you come to see me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of uh, dealing with whatever uh, the, the surgeon has, has done. Uh, the next level would be a knee disarticulation. And so that's an amputation, like basically through the knee. One of the surgical options is leaving the kneecap intact. And one of the, uh, another option is actually removing the kneecap. The plus for that is that you can basically select kneeling down onto the prosthesis. So the, the, the skin, the bone, it's the, your, your knee is, is a fairly wide bone. And so you can tolerate a fair bit of weight bearing through the knee. Um, and, and, you know, sort of, if you think uh, we can kneel down, we can sort of scoot around on our knees for a little bit. It's, it's much more tolerable than sort of, you know, through the distal end of your residual limb as a transtibial. So for a knee district, one of the downsides is very similar to the Symes amputation in that we have very little options for prosthetic knees. Uh, when we put a prosthetic knee on a knee dissertic, uh, the, the knee centers won't line up with the sound side knee center. And so that can, that can limit some of our options for prosthetic knees. Um, a lot of the, the, the market processor knees um, and the really high functioning knees, uh, there's a lot of space and you can end up like two, three inches off, which affects the, the, the symmetry in your gait. And one of the things that I'm, I'm aim for in alignment uh, is getting as symmetrical a gait as possible. Uh, next level up would be um, a transfemoral. So amputation happens through the femur. Um, and again, same concept as you're below the knee. A longer residual limb gives you more leverage. Um, but if you get to a certain point, then we start to limit the amount of your options for prosthetic knees. Um, but ideally you, you want, that's unlike the transtibial, you do want to cheat as long as possible as, as a transfemoral amp. Uh, the very short transfemoral amps, um, the leverage you have is very limited and makes walking a fair bit more difficult. Um, Beyond that, our next option, next option is making it sound like a, like a choice. Um, the, the, the next level that we would talk about is a hip disarticulation. Um, and that's basically an amputation through the, um, the, the femur and the pelvis. So if, we're, if, if the amputation happens that high, then we're looking at a hip disarticulation uh, prosthesis, which now we have to have a prosthetic hip joint, a knee joint, and ankle joint and foot. Um, so the complexity and the amount of energy required to walk goes up. And, and the same, I think that's easily applicable for whatever the level is, the higher the level, the more energy required to, uh, to ambulate. There is a four quarter amputation, which is basically uh, an amputation that takes part of the pelvis as well. Um, typically that is uh, done uh, where tumors are involved. And so if you can't save any of the, 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 the pelvis and the acetabulum, um, then you're, you're going up higher in amputation through the pelvis. Uh, same thing happens uh, for the upper extremity. You can have a, a partial finger. Um, we have amputations uh, of the thumb 
amputations of all the fingers, leaving the thumb, and any combination thereof. Um, a lot of those tend to be workplace injuries. Um, and uh, there are a number of prosthetic devices that we can do. Um, and this is actually evolving almost, almost on a daily basis where there are a number of new prosthetic devices uh, replacing the function of uh, the fingers, um, things like the, the naked prosthesis. And there's a few other, when I say new, is that we've been talking them in the last couple of months. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so really, really, really new devices. What we have typically done is something we call the Milbrandt, which is basically a rigid opposition, basically shaped to grasp uh, an object like a broom for the sake of argument or uh, a knife or something along those lines and then assuming you have the thumb your thumb becomes uh, presses against that uh, prosthesis to hold and grasp if you don't have the thumb then we're going to put what we call an opposition post and so it's something that may come up the forearm a little bit and basically provide something so that you can move your fingers against that rigid uh opposition post and so that you can grasp. So what we're just basically trying to replace grasp as best we can with um, depending on what's there. I find the upper extremity to be a bit of a mixed bag. And I, what I mean by that is that I find it fascinating and, and really um, challenging to find uh, the, 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 the tool that will work for um, the individual amputee because especially for the upper extremity, um, the, the device is so individualized. Um, the other side of that is that while I, and, and I'm, this is an oversimplification, but I think that the prosthetic devices that we have, a prosthetic foot, does a lot more of the function of our, our foot than the prosthetic hand does as compared to our hand. And so um, I find that the deficit is greater for an upper extremity amputee. Um, but it's also really interesting to try to create a, a prosthesis that's gonna help someone um, that is missing a hand because the tasks that uh, that prosthesis is required to do is so much more varied, whether it be recreational, whether it be occupational, um, whether it be activity of daily living, um, toileting, um, self-care, all those types of things. Um, and typically for an upper extremity, not one uh, prosthesis does all of those things. So um, that can be both uh, challenging and um, soul, <laughs> soul shattering a little bit. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're I so can, close. <laughs> yeah, I can just imagine as well. Like, I mean, if it is your dominant hand that you lost, Right, that means you're dealing now with writing, with holding things, with not even thinking about picking up things, and you don't, you don't have the same movement of your hand to pick up something. The, like I say, the deficit to what is normal is so significant, um, and I, and I look at it even the the difficulty in retraining to use your non-dominant hand is is so difficult to do something with your non-dominant hand is you still have all the sensation all the touch, all the strength, all the speed of movement, and it's still hard. And now we're gonna try and do those things using another part of the body to replicate that in something that you can't feel, you can't touch, and is moving at a different speed that you know you can or cannot control. And, and 
quite frankly, even as, as sophisticated as some of the new myelectric prostheses are, they're still a long way, a long, long way off. And I, I know that you can make the argument, depending on what task you're doing, that some of the body powered are actually much more functional than some of the expensive myelectric prostheses. So that's another one of those things. Again, it comes down to what is the task that we're trying to accomplish and, and how do we go about doing that? And what's the easiest way to make that happen? So it, it, comes, it comes down to exactly the same, that original assessment. What is the goal for the user? Mm-hmm. So after we go partial hand, we've got wrist disarticulation, which is functionally not that different than a transradial but uh, gives you more leverage and gives us some other options for uh, suspension depending on myelectric versus body powered. And so at this point, you sort of have to uh, branch out, actually still need to branch out even for a a partial hand. You need to branch out and sort of figure out there's two different trains of thought, one being body powered, one being myelectric. And I'll actually throw a third one in there as a passive because even a passive process is still very, very functional we get used to doing things with two hands and if you only have one how do you how do you push against something so even a passive prosthesis creates an opposition that you can push again to hold something if you ever try to sign a piece of paper with just the pen the, the the paper moves with the pen not you know your pen doesn't move on the paper so you still need even that passive prosthesis that can just rest and hold the paper still so that you can sign something as simple as signing a, a piece of paper so uh, we go to transradial. Again, now we've got some more options for the prosthetic hand, whether it be body powered, uh, myelectric, or, or, or passive. And the wrist assertic, the issue that you have is if the residual limb uh, is fairly long by the time we put a wrist, and then that hand, we can actually end up with uh, a length discrepancy. So it, uh, cosmetically or, or aesthetically, it may not look quite right. And, you know, it doesn't line up quite as, 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 as well as if it was the correct length. So we spend a lot of time trying to get that length to match as closely as we can. Um, obviously, the transradial, we've, we've got some, some range. Transradial is similar to the transfemoral in that the length, because the, the, uh, you, you have much more variability in lengths, um, whereas the Below the knee amputation happens where the, the muscle will come around. We don't have the same issue because we're not trying to protect the, uh, the bones in the arm in the same way because we're not weight bearing on the upper extremity prosthesis. Then we have the elbow dissertic. Same issue that your choices for elbows are much less than your transhumeral elbow options. Uh, and often we'll have to go with like external joints, which makes the prosthesis wider. And, and so sometimes not as ideal cosmetically. Uh, transhumeral amputation, again, the same issues, uh, comparing transtibial to a transfemoral as a transradial to a transhumeral. The amount of work that ha- you have to do to control now multiple joints, it, the work effort goes up quite significantly with every level we go higher. Uh, there are options for shoulder disarticulation uh, amputations, and then the same thing with a forequarter, which is actually through the clavicle. Um, and the collarbone. If we start talking and trying to compare uh, myelectric and body powered, the the easiest way that I would break that down 
is that uh, the body power tends to be a lot more precise. I've seen an amputee catching a ball with a prosthetic hook that was body powered. There's no way that I can imagine you doing that with a myelectric, right? The amount of signal, even though those it's just milliseconds, you'd be too slow. So there are definitely some things that functionally the body powered will do that the, the myelectric will not be able to do. What I find the myelectric does is it gives you sort of a bit of both worlds. It still looks like a hand and you still have a lot of the grasp functions and it's not the same um, sort of stress on your body as you try to maintain a grasp or, or maintain it open. Again, we could, we could be here for the next three days talking about some of the little subtle differences between a voluntary open and voluntary closing hook. What are the common systems that, that is used or that is commonly a go-to, I guess? Okay, so sort of focusing on transtibials or, or below the knee amputations, because that's going to be the vast majority. We have, so we talked a little bit about uh, the thermal prep and the preparatory prosthesis. Um, versus a definitive. And so the prep being with the expectation that the uh, residual limb is going to change and we're going to need to change it. Um, and it's not going to last all that long. Um, then we can uh, look at the different types of uh, suspension or cushions. So for example, uh, silicone liners uh, and, a, and a lump, polyurethane, TPE, uh, mineral oil liners all into the same. There are subtle differences as to why you would choose one versus another. Um, but let's use liners as compared to um, uh, not using a liner. And so we use a liner for a couple of reasons. One of the options is, is for suspension. Um, and so the ones that have the pin uh, on the end or uh, a lanyard system or something like that, basically we're using the liner uh, the way it fold, holds onto the body, then the it's a mechanical lock into the prosthesis, and that's how we're going to hold the prosthesis together. Um, sorry, hold the prosthesis onto the amputee. We can also use liners with cushioning. So someone who is more atrophied, um, we're going to use a, a liner to replace that lost muscle to protect the bones in, in the limb. We can also... Uh, manage. Uh, so uh, a lot of times we use silicone for people that have a lot of scarring, because again, what we're going to do is the, the silicone goes against the skin and any shear forces will then happen between the socket and the liner, not the liner and the skin. And so this, the, the, the silicone liner holds the skin together and we get less shear forces if there's um, burns and um, skin grafts and those types of things. Um, uh, activity level is a factor. Um, so someone who like yourself will do running will probably want to have something more than just socks as an interface. We need something that's going to be uh, absorb some of that impact and not pass it on uh, to the skin and squeezing the skin between the hard bone and the hard laminated socket. And so those are some of the reasons we would use a liner. If we use a liner, that, but not for uh, suspension, without the pin, without the lanyard, then we're gonna have to have some other way of holding the leg on. So options then become suction. Um, so if you I use the analogy of holding a cup of water and you can sort of hold it upside down and you can lift that water above, as long as air isn't getting into the cup, you've lifted the water above the surface of the water. And same thing with a prosthesis. If we've got 
a seal and there's no air getting into the socket, it will suspend, it will not fall off. And so that's another strategy for holding the prosthesis on. All of those things are sort of pros and cons. So if you're going in and, and, and someone's looking at uh, someone across the way and their prosthetic, uh, their prosthesis and wondering why it's different, there's, there's a myriad of reasons for why you could be uh, looking at something different. It could be their activity level, it could be underlying scar tissues, it could be underlining bony prominences, it could be, so a variety of different reasons. I guess my question is like, so how, what would you recommend patients do or your clients do before going into conversation with you, either the very first time or after maybe the second time that they had a fitting already, where you could start this conversation as to what your definitive socket would look like? Um, I think the biggest thing is uh, a, realist, a realistic sense of what you're hoping to accomplish. Um, what we typically get is a lot of people who say, um, you know, I want to, uh, I, I want to run. I want to take up running. I want to cycle. I want to do these types of things. I play golf. Uh, I play tennis. Though I want to get back to those activities. And so that helps me have a sense of what I'm looking at in making recommendations for components, uh, for socket styles, et cetera, et cetera. The one thing that I would say is um, I would ask anyone uh, having that discussion to to be realistic. Um, what's the old joke? Well, will I be able to play the piano? Well, did you play the piano before? <laughs> right? And, and, and so the same thing is if you have not run in 50 years, you know, maybe you wanna just focus on walking quickly rather than trying to make a prosthesis to let you run. Um, if you seriously have been running and that's what you wanna get into, be straightforward. This is what I want to do. This is important. Um, and, you know, we would look potentially at multiple different terminal devices, multiple different feet, um, because any activity we do is going to be a bit of a compromise. Um, and so uh, if golfing was something that you did before and you want to golf, then I'm, that might point me in a different direction in terms of prosthetic feet. Ones that may have a little bit of rotation, a little bit of movement, to allow that twisting to happen and not uh, transfer those forces to your limb in quite the same way. Um, but if you've golfed three times in the last five years, do you wanna spend the extra money for that prosthetic foot with that little bit of movement that is, if you're not playing regularly is negligible, right? So, so that's, to me, that's part of it is, is think through the things that you want to do um, things. I wanna drive a car, I wanna, pick up my grandchildren. I want to uh, be able to walk through the splash pad with them. Splash pad, okay, that's good. But now do we, do we make a prosthesis that is waterproof? Because we can choose components that are waterproof, but there is an additional cost to that. And so some of those types of things uh, come into play. And, and basically the more things that you have in your mind as you want to do, again, not just here's what I would really wish to do, but here's what I have been doing and here's what I want to get back to. The more of those types of things, the, the better we're able to, to narrow down your options to say, okay, these are the two things that I would recommend, this type of foot or this type of foot. Um, and, and that gets us closer to the, the outcome. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I would, I would go one step further is that even if we did decide that we we're going to get you the foot that is the best compromise, what alignment are we going to set it up for? For the alignment that allows you to run, walking would not be very good. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. the, 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 the alignment allows you to run would not allow you to walk well. And the alignment that allows you to walk smoothly and comfortably would be too soft for running. And so everything then comes back to being a compromise unless you can have six different terminal devices, right? Um, but then that becomes an issue of there's there's a cost involved in doing that it's the same thing with the guy who goes out and buys the the absolute best golf clubs because he's an elite golfer well he's getting value out of those uh golf clubs and same thing applies to a prosthesis if you're going to get the value out of um the the high-end running device then yeah absolutely i would say go for it but if you're not going to, then you have to sort of balance off that cost. Uh, one of the things that I certainly try to have the discussion with uh, anyone coming to me is what's realistic, because unfortunately there is a cost associated with prosthetic care in Ontario. And yes, the government will pay for one device and we try to make it as, uh, as encompassing for all activities as much as possible, but you just can't hit the extremes. So everything becomes a compromise, whether it be cost, whether it be alignment, whether it be uh, component selection. Mm -hmm. When I first started, I'm the, my, the, my boss, the, the, the person I was learning from, uh, she had a saying, um, it's the legs are designed for standing, not for sitting. And what happens, especially for a lot of the upper extremity, uh, sorry, the, the uh, transfemorals and, and, and higher level lower extremity amps is that it, it is a compromise. Um, the, the prosthesis that doesn't fit nicely on your couch and it's kind of pushing you up a little bit. There's times where there, I, there's very little I can do to make that ideal in the non-weight bearing area because if I do that, it's going to compromise the weight bearing and the legs designed for weight bearing. And so yeah, it, it's, it's, it, does, um, it does provide some challenges uh, to try and accomplish as many things with as few um, contradictions as possible. But unfortunately, like everything else, we're, we're, we have to balance those, those needs out. Let's talk about being prosthetist for those who are looking into getting into this role. What, um, I guess, first of all, so I call you guys prosthetist and I think that is your official name, but I've heard yeah. leg guy, prosthetician, that's probably the funniest one that I've heard. Um, so maybe explain what it is or what, what it takes to become a prosthetist and is that your real title? Yeah, I believe that is a real title. I believe uh, certified prosthetist is sort of trademarked. Um, and so I believe anyone could, could in theory call themselves a prosthetist, but the, the, I guess the proper title is certified prosthetist. <laughs> but not um, prosthetician. No, not prosthetician or proctologist or <laughs> my wife was- My leg guy. <laughs> yeah, my wife was uh, was a teacher at the time when I was um, starting off, and uh, every time she'd explain to the students, and someone would have to make a comment about a proctologist. <laughs> proctologist, okay, that's a little far, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, a little further north. Although yeah, for like... an upper for a transfemoral, we're yeah. not far off. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll go there. 
so what that is um, rewind so, yeah so um so what does it take like you know from an education wise like what is the what are the the steps or the to become a process so currently um there are two possibly three schools in canada um and to when i say that the, the possible third is in quebec and i don't know i know that they had attained certification through opc and then they lost it and they've got it back and i'm not sure where they are in that point right now the two primary schools um uh, in canada is uh, george Brown college and bcit um so the prerequisites are an undergrad degree in a related field um typically most commonly it's uh, human kinetics but any sort of combination of physiotherapy, um, um, nursing, engineering, uh, any basically if you've got an undergrad in, in something that is, is related, even biomechanics, those types of things uh, would qualify you to apply for the um, clinical program. So uh, splitting it out, there's, there's a technical program, the clinical program, and I don't want to miss the technicians on the manufacturing side of things to be a technician is just a high school diploma and i believe that with work experience uh you can write the competencies tests and get in even without uh the diploma i'm not 100 percent sure on that one though but that'd be the technical program it's a two-year program and then you would start working after that uh, in prosthetics orthotics and then you write your registration exams after roughly two years of uh, that registration uh, sort of residency period or I believe it for technicians is an internship and for the clinicians is a residency but basically it's the additional learning after school uh, and then you write the national exams same thing applies for the clinical program as I said, the undergrad uh, degree, uh, applying uh, through the, uh, the, the college, I'm more familiar with uh, GBC. And, and so you would go through, uh, you write the exam, and I think the top 20 or 25 get, uh, they do an interview type package. So you put together a package, um, answer some questions, and they, they go through uh some some sort of i'll say skill testing questions not quite fair but there are there's a package that you need to complete to apply to the the program and how long is that clinician program the clinical program is also two years so it's a two-year postgraduate degree uh sorry let me rephrase that as a two-year postgraduate diploma um that then allows you to apply for a residency and then uh, another two years of working to sort of get that additional competencies, uh, fitting patients and the, the practical knowledge. At the same time, you're studying for your national exams and then the end of that two years. Um, and it's not specifically two years, it's um, a number of hours and I don't have that number on the top of my head, but I wanna say it's somewhere in the area of about 5,000 hours. Again, I'm not sure if the math is quite right on that. Uh, so it can take you more than two years, depending on when you get hired, because being a relatively small community, we have one um, exam period per year. And so uh, you, if you start early enough, it can be done in two years. But if you're sort of not hired by July, August, then it, you may not accumulate sufficient hours to write at the first spot. So it might actually be more. So my case, um, 
I got hired in October. So I, it took me three years sort of thing. So the first spot where a lot of my classmates were able to write, I hadn't accumulated enough hours. So it was the next year. So, so but roughly, do, yeah. So you have to, yeah. So I was going to say, so you have to do your, your in class, if you will, of actually attending class for two years on the, your clinician side. And then there's your, your right. residency for another two years. But that too is dependent on where in the rotation you are of the exam. So to your point, yeah, like so it's, it's going it's, to the three-year or... Exactly. So it's a number of hours. And if if you can get a job out of school within a sh- relatively short period of time, you can get your hours within two years, if that makes sense. After you write that exam, then do you still go to, to the package of having a skill test and, you know, where you demonstrate your skills or you get certification immediately after? So that is the exam. The exam, you um, so there's a written component and then a practical component. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're actually in the process. I think in the last two years, they've been making some changes uh, to bring it a little bit more in line with uh, what the med schools do for their uh, comp- competency exams. Um, and so uh, at the end of the, your, your residency period, you write the national exams, and if you're successful, you're granted a certified process title. Title, yeah. And then from uh, just obviously, there's there's roles there's roles differences, and then there's also the education difference. So from a lab perspective, so you have your clinician and then your technician. So maybe in layman's terms for us, explain the two roles and how they differ and how they are the same and how they work together. Uh, so to, to very very simply, and I'm probably going to oversimplify this. Um, the technician is responsible for the manufacturing, um, some of the design in terms of, uh, um, layup material, etc. um, and, and aesthetic shaping, uh, that sort of the, 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 the fabrication end of things. And the clinician is responsible for the fit interface alignment and prescription. Okay. And then do you maintain a certification every year to keep your, or do you, do you do something to keep your certification going? So we do uh, mandatory continuing education. So we have to get a certain number of uh, what we call MCE points over, I think it's every f- a five year period. So by attending uh, seminars, by basically continuing uh, education. So keeping current on uh, new components, on new techniques, on new um, ways of, of, of doing things. Uh, that's how we keep our certification uh, current. All right. Oh, that's good. I think that goes for a lot of certifications. Uh, yeah. Anywhere, really. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, for sure. What's the most fulfilling for you as a prosthetist? Is it the problem solving, um, the, you know, or, or is it working with the different clients, the innovation in prosthesis? Well, what makes you take every morning and say, I'm going to prosthetist today? <laughs> wow. I guess. If, if I had to narrow it down, it is, it is the satisfaction I get to um, uh, helping someone get back to doing the things they want to do. There are a multitude of subsets of that that uh, I really quite enjoy. Uh, there is a huge sort of problem-solving component. Um, and we, I, was, I think I alluded to some of the discussions around the upper extremity, trying to figure out how to do or to get uh, the, the, the client to, to do a certain task in a non-traditional way. I, I, I quite enjoy that challenge 
Um, I like some of the, the, the technical fabrication that goes into some of the um, uh, making, making something work. Uh, a lot of the stuff we do, especially for the upper extremity, isn't an out-of-the-box fix. And so you start off with the stuff out of the box and you go, okay, how can I make this work backwards, upside down, sideways, whatever. Um, the classic story that I remember is when I worked in the children's hospital back before my time, they used adult elbows for pediatric knees because they didn't make pediatric knees small enough. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. And, and, and those types of things I find really, really fascinating. But, but, but getting someone to do uh, or, or helping someone to do the thing that uh, they're really good at is amazing. Uh, working with with someone who either has um, been sick and you know been in bed for a long period of time, just gone through an amputation, gone through the worst period of their life, and and to get them up and and standing that first time, you can sometimes just see the glow in their face when they're like, "It's not over. I can still do this." That 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 cell right now, even just describing it, getting chills down my spine because there's there's nothing quite like that. You know, it's, it's just so, it's so intrinsically rewarding. So I, you know, without geeking out too much more than that, that's, that's, that's the best part. Right. No, that's, that's awesome. I mean, that's really good to hear and inspirational, if you will. So how, <laughs> what, what, what tips would you say for somebody who's considering this as a career? Ultimately, like anything else, you're going to do your research and, and, and find out what it is. There, the, the, the thing that I look at for the tasks that we need to do is like, we need to have a little bit of knowledge in every possible area. We don't need to know as much medicine as a doctor by a long shot, but we need to have a sense of what, uh, what the implications of certain drugs are. So a diuretic um, may remove fluid from the system. So we need to know that if someone's on diuretics, their, their, their limb is likely to shrink and be able to anticipate that. So that we're giving them their appropriate education to manage their socks. We need to know uh, that someone on dialysis is going to have volume fluctuations. So if we take the impression right after dialysis, we better leave a little extra space so we don't make it too tight because before dialysis, now the leg's gonna be too tight and won't fit. We need to have a basic understanding of some of the engineering principles so that we can put forces, uh, so, so your body force going through the prosthesis isn't pushing you one way or another because we haven't aligned those forces properly. There is an artistic aspect of it that is, there's a little bit of sculpting. I, I don't consider myself an artist in any way. And yet there, I, I do acknowledge there is some art in the sculpting and, and shaping of the, the plaster mold to make the prosthetic socket. So it's a little bit of all of those things. And um, I think for me, that's that's the part that I really enjoy is taking a little bit of knowledge here, a little bit of knowledge there and putting those all those things together. Right. And lastly, what tips would you have for amputees? Um, so for the very first time, there's there's not off, there's often not a lot of prep they can do. All right. They're in hospital and uh, they're, I don't want to say captive, but it's not like they can get up and, and walk away. So there's not a lot. The, the, the biggest thing for, for that person is to sort of be realistic and explain what the concerns, fears, et cetera, are so that we can um, work together to get the most uh, sort of the, the best set of options. 
for a, uh, a returning amputee, someone who's already got some experience, I think try as best you can to, to give some consideration to what it is you're looking for, what's important to you, because that helps us narrow what we're going to try to do, or at least have the discussion and engage in going, okay, golf's really important to me, running's important to me, or, you know, um, whether it's, I, I work in a, uh, in a dusty area, okay, so maybe we're not going to go for the microprocessor knee because that won't stand up in that area. So again, goals and, and, and the, the, the more complete that we can have that assessment, and, and sometimes you Sometimes it helps if you're spoon feeding the process, the information about you, because you know you, and we're trying to learn about you to provide you with the best thing possible. Awesome. That's perfect. I want to thank Shane Glassford at Sunny Rug Center for Independent Living for joining me today. I'll share all the links on my website at www.harrisconsumnet.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any comments, questions, or show ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at The Empty Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and this has been the FTO Show Podcast.